Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, and a special edition on management of metastatic colorectal cancer. This program is a bit unique in that our usual pairing of a clinical physician investigator with a nurse or nurse practitioner this time come from the same institution, the famed gastrointestinal oncology unit of the Mayo Clinic. To begin, I met with Dr. Axel Grothy for an update on how new research findings are affecting the care of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. And to begin, he discussed the key issues on his mind when he first evaluates a patient in this situation. So when I see a patient with metastatic colorectal cancer, the first idea that I toss around is, you know, what's the goal of my treatment for this patient? Can this patient be cured? You know, because the unique thing in colorectal cancer is we can actually cure some patients with metastatic disease. That's something we would never talk about, let's say, in pancreas cancer or even in lung cancer, you know, distant metastasis, liver metastasis, for instance, are a death sentence in a lot of cancers. But in colorectal cancer, we know if we render a patient free of disease using chemotherapy and surgery, for instance, we can actually give these patients a chance to cure. So one of the critical issues in the very beginning is to look at the whole situation of the patient. It's like age, metastasis, pattern of metastasis, where are these metastases located, comorbidities, what kind of treatments can this patient tolerate, and identify is there a chance for this patient to get rid of their cancer. And that really drives the first initial idea about you know, and considerations for a patient. So can you kind of describe what a typical patient would be who you'd be thinking about cure and a patient where you wouldn't be thinking about it? So a patient that has a limited disease, a limited metastatic disease, for instance, to liver and or lung. For instance, classical case, a patient who had colon cancer, let's say two years ago, primary tumor was resected, now is in surveillance and a CT scan identifies a solitary, a single lesion metastasis in the right lobe of the liver, three centimeter, you know, a little more than an inch in size. This is a patient where I would think, you know, with surgery, perioperative chemotherapy, we can actually give this patient a pretty good chance to get free of disease, actually almost certainty to get free of disease, and hopefully this will then translate into cure. Globally, what kind of chance of cure are you looking at? Okay, so if we have a patient where we can achieve, let's say, a situation where metastases are removed, and we use chemotherapy around the surgery, for instance, which is a very standard way of treating patients, five-year survival rate can be as high as 50 to 60%. Now, five-year survival rate doesn't mean that all those patients are cured. A lot of these patients are actually alive with disease. So even after resection of the liver metastasis, the cancer comes back. In fact, probably about 80% of those patients will eventually have a tumor recurrence. So if you look at a long-term outcome, those patients who are really cured it's about 20, 25%, 30% if you select patients right. Now, that's not trivial. I mean, that's still a large number of patients, and giving a patient one out of four, one out of five chance to get free of disease and to be cured, I mean, that's significant because, you know, we're talking about individuals here. So what about the rest of the patients, probably the majority of patients who don't have potentially curable disease, how do you go about figuring out which type of systemic therapy you're going to use and then what sequence of different agents you might be using 
over the next few years. Yeah, so when I talk to my patients who are in a non-curable situation, let's say scattered liver metastasis, lung metastasis, peritoneal disease, just the, you would never have a chance to get this patient free of disease with surgery and chemotherapy. I talk to my patient like, you know, my goal is to keep you around in good quality of life as long as possible. And we're using our toolbox, which is drugs, chemotherapy agents, targeted agents, antibodies, etc., that all work. And we're building kind of combinations of these agents in terms of chemotherapy regimens and utilize this treatment to keep the tumor controlled as long as possible. So the goal is really duration of life and quality of life. And my philosophy is if we are in a, let's say, a situation where a newly diagnosed tumor, metastatic disease, I like to push the tumor back first. I use an induction maintenance therapy approach. So what I use is, for instance, a combination regimen like Falfox bevacizumab, which is pretty well tolerated initially, at least until the neurotoxicity from oxaloplatin comes into play. I stop oxaloplatin routinely after eight cycles. I delete bolus 5-FU from the regimen, which I think is anyone who's listening to this recording, don't use bolus 5-FU with Falfox in a palliative setting because it really reduces neutropenia if you don't use it. So you can't keep patients on the every two week schedules. You have almost no mucositis, no stomatitis. Diarrhea is better, patients feel better. And data are as on par in clinical trials as if you use bolus 5 you in a palliative setting. So I use a non-bolus 5 you containing Falfox regimen plus bevacizumab in a lot of patients. We can talk about KRAS in a minute. Then stop oxaloplatin after eight cycles, meaning after 16 weeks. And then put patients on a maintenance therapy with this either 5-FU or capecitabine plus bevacizumab and keep those patients on this treatment, kind of a chemo-light phase as long as possible until they have clinically relevant progression or toxicities, of course. You might give patients a break in between. And then cycle through different lines of therapy, reutilize agents over time. For instance, when you give patients a planned break from oxaloplatin early on, you can reutilize oxaloplatin later being mindful about neurotoxicity. So this is kind of a pretty standard approach. And when you look at what we can achieve with this kind of using our toolbox, our drugs to keep patients alive and good quality of life, duration of life can be several years. I mean, we have patients now with metastatic disease, never free of disease, but controlled by chemotherapy and targeted agents for five, six, seven, eight years. What about when you get to the maintenance phase in terms of 5-FU bevacizumab? Do you sometimes switch to capecitabine bev? Yes, I routinely offer my patients a capecitabine bev regimen. And I actually, you know, I've switched recently in the way I dose capecitabine. In the standard dose in combination, for instance, with bevacizumab would be 1,000 milligrams per meter squared twice a day, two weeks on, one week off. Now, you know, we have regimens like in gastric cancer, the so-called EOX regimen, where we give capecitabine continuously without a break, and we spread out the dose over three weeks, and this would be 625 milligrams per meter squared twice a day continuously. And that is actually a lot better tolerated. So I've been using this now routinely in my patients, continuous capecitabine, no break. A fairly recent concept in systemic cancer treatment is the use of a biologic agent indefinitely, regardless of disease progression. What about anti-angiogenics? 
keeping some form of anti-tumor therapy around, in particular a drug like bevacizumab, which is suppressor of angiogenesis, blood vessel growth, suppressor of a substance called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, keeping this drug around is probably beneficial for patients. In terms of the tolerability of bevacizumab and indications for it, what are the situations where you would not use the drug. Yeah. So the main side effect of bevacizumab are probably the critical side effects, vascular side effects. I mean, arterial thromboembolic events like heart attacks, strokes, whatever. So in patients who had a recent history of a stroke or cardiovascular disease, whatever, I would be hesitant to use bevacizumab. I'm also hesitant to use bevacizumab in patients who have colon stents in place. You know, colon stents are being placed by gastroenterologists sometimes when they encounter an obstructing tumor in the colon, and they think, you know, in the presence of liver metastasis, for instance, you know, let's give this patient systemic chemotherapy. We can deal with the obstruction placing a stent. And, you know, for some time we did this, you know. The development of these colon stents and the availability of bevacizumab came almost at the same time, the early 2000s, you know, 2004, 2005. So we have Mayo Clinic series to demonstrate that patients who have colon stents in place have an 18% risk of bowel perforation. We know that bevacizumab is already associated with some risk of bowel perforation, which is in the range of about 1.5 to 3%. 18% is not tolerable. So if we have a colon stand in place, I don't give bevacizumab as part of my initial treatment at least. At what specific level of hypertension do you start antihypertensives? My trigger to treat would be kind of a repeated blood pressure over 160 over 95. And the good news is, you know, when you start bevacizumab, the hypertension doesn't occur rapidly. You have time to react. You kind of check blood pressure every visit, and, you know, there's something that creeps up on you. It's not an acute effect in the vast majority of patients. So I use calcium antagonists as a first defense, amlodipine, for instance, as a second choice of ACE inhibitors combined with diuretics. So you have calcium antagonists, ACE inhibitors, diuretics, Beta blockers probably don't work as well, you know, from the very mechanism of action. When I talk to my colleagues in our cardiovascular clinic and the mechanism of action of VEGF inhibition and, you know, the way bevacizumab actually works suggests that the sequence of that vasodilators are probably better in terms of, you know, counteracting the mechanism of action. So that's why calcium antagonists are in the forefront. So hopefully if you have started as the first line setting full fox bevacizumab, then they transition onto maintenance mm-hmm. with 5-FU or capecitabine bevacizumab, at some point they're likely to have disease progression. Yeah. And that whole scenario has gotten a lot more complicated in the last year. Can you talk about how you think through second line therapy and what's new in that regard? So when patients progress on this maintenance therapy, it's actually probably the situation, as you rightfully said, where we have a lot of different treatment options right now. And it really depends on the clinical situation, how patients tolerate agents, etc., what kind of treatment you will choose. So one way to deal with progression on maintenance therapy would be to go back to an oxaplatin-based regimen if you started with oxaplatin. Now, I have to say, you know, a lot of people also use fulfiry and the renotecan-based regimen in combination with bevacizumab as first line. I actually also stop arenotecan at some point 
because I don't think that patients need this continued aggressive therapy, in particular when you're shooting for years. You know, why would you kind of deplete the bone marrow, for instance, or have patients fatigued or chronic diarrhea? You know, patients like to be on maintenance therapy or no therapy, but maintenance therapy is probably superior. So you can reintroduce what you had before and keep everything the same. Now, if you really want to change the treatment, you know, you could, number one, switch from a chemotherapy drug, use oxaplatin first, you go to renotecan, or you could use renotecan first, you go to oxaplatin. Now, the choice of the biologic agent that we like to combine these second-line therapies with is more complicated. So you have number one data to continue bevacizumab beyond progression. It's actually not anything that I consider trivial. It's a shift in paradigm. You continue a drug beyond progression, and you know this has survival benefit as if you don't do that. We have a very well-designed trial, phase three trial, where we clearly showed that the continuation of bevacizumab beyond progression is associated with survival benefit. So the idea is you're continuing the biologic but switching the chemo. Correct. So you're switching the chemotherapy but continuing bevacizumab, which is the only biologic where this kind of use beyond progression has been documented so far. And you know, as you say, that concept in oncology is something we rarely have done in the past. Usually, you give somebody a chemotherapeutic agent, they get worse. Okay, it's like antibiotics. They're resistant to it. You want to switch. But you've been involved in this whole question of bevacizumab beyond progression for quite a long time. And in a sense, there was one precedent, at least that I can think of in oncology, in breast cancer yeah, with trastuzumab. trastuzumab. Mm-hmm. And for years, people had this feeling that patients did better if you kept it going and switched the chemo. And then finally, there was a trial that proved it. And now the same thing has happened with bevacizumab. When you think about it conceptually, why do you think it is that you continue this drug that's part of a regimen that's not working, and then it works? So in the situation might actually be different between trastuzumab and bevacizumab, because trastuzumab continues to hit tumor cells. You know, so in breast cancer, there are breast cancers that are HER2-driven tumors. You know, this is a very basic and very important mechanism. And we have, I mean, the HER2 biology and drugs against HER2 signaling, I mean, this is an amazing story that's happening in breast cancer. I guess the other thing, too, now that I think about is prostate cancer, where they keep the androgen deprivation going. Correct, correct. So a basic mechanism that's really driving a tumor cell, you know, androgen dependency, for instance, or the HER2 signaling dependency in in breast cancer. Now, bevacizumab in colon cancer might be a little bit different because bevacizumab doesn't really target the tumor cells. And this might actually be the reason why it works, because we're targeting endothelial cells, blood vessels, which are generated by the normal host. That's the host environment, which is genetically stable. And tumor cells need blood vessels. I mean, this is probably a basic principle that tumors can only grow if they recruit blood vessels to some degree. Now, it's actually a very interesting phenomenon that in colon cancer and other tumors, the initial factor that is being produced, at least, is this VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. And if you stop an anti-VEGF approach, tumor cells might default back to that. You know, of course, they develop other mechanisms to create blood vessels and eventually grow. But if you stop putting pressure on this VEGF, if you kind of take this anti-VEGF drug away, tumor cells go back to it because that's kind of a basic program. So and just to clarify that a little bit, so you have VEGF floating around in the blood mm-hmm. that stimulates blood vessel formation. Correct. Bevacizumab is an antibody that binds the VEGF, so it can't do that. 
you're saying then they've been on it, then you take it off, and then it comes back and starts to stimulate the blood vessels. That's again. exactly what it is. Yeah. So if you keep this VEGF under control, if you continue to inhibit it and you change chemotherapy, this was the idea behind the study, you might have longer benefit. So you have that as an option for your second-line therapy in mm -hmm. the patients who are dealing with regression. But now, in the last year, there's another option out there, a new agent, so-called VEGF trap of Flibercept. Yeah. What is it? How does it work? So Flibercept is, number one, not an antibody. It is a pretty remarkably designed molecule where fragments of the VEGF receptors on the surface of the endothelial cells, so the receptors that bind VEGF or other growth factors, vascular growth factors, these fragments are being linked to an antibody-like molecule. So we have a protein that is now able to bind VEGF A, which is what Bevacizumab does, exactly what Bevacizumab does. But in addition, VEGF B, another factor that's around and a factor called placenta growth factor, which is also a pro-angiogenesis factor. So it inhibits three molecules instead of one, what bevacizumab does. Although, in a sense, it's similar to bevacizumab in that it's soaking up this ligand. Exactly. It's soaking or up... Or ligands. It's soaking up factors produced by tumor cells which stimulate blood vessels. So it does what bevacizumab does and something else beyond that. Now, the question that we have is, how important are the other factors beyond this VEGF-A, which bevacizumab inhibits, for tumor biology in general? This is not completely conclusive right now. And the data we have when you talk about second-line therapy, you know, a flibercept or VEGF-trap really improves survival in patients who get treated with chemotherapy when a flibercept is added in so-called second-line therapy. But interestingly, remarkably to the same extent as bevacizumab does when it's used beyond progression. Although I guess there's no direct comparison. Correct. So you have we to have indirectly compare. We have cross-trial comparison between a flibocept and bevacizumab. So it is it's again no trial that has compared these two different drugs head to head. I would think this trial should be conducted at some point because we like to know. I mean it would be an interesting exercise. So in terms of how do we use these drugs in clinical practice, we base it on this cross-trial comparison. We base it on side effect profile, you know, which there are differences between bevacizumab and aflibercept, and then look at the specific inclusion-exclusion criteria of these different trials that show that bevacizumab beyond progression works and aflibercept works. But the bottom line is there is that choice out there. Of course, bevacizumab has been around a lot longer than aflibercept, which just yep. got approved, and I'm not sure how much experience people have with it at this point. And we know also from the bright registry study that you did that oncologists, like with trastuzumab, started using this strategy of bevone progression many years ago because it kind of made sense to them. Yeah. So they're kind of used to doing that. But what do we know about the side effects of a flibercept? It kind of has a reputation right now of maybe having a little more toxicity than continuing Bev. Yeah, so the interesting point was that if you talk about pure VEGF inhibitors, and we know bevacizumab as a pure VEGF inhibitor for a long time, you know, this hypertension, low risk of bowel perforation, arterial embolic disease, low frequencies. It's a drug you can really compare against placebo. Patients normally don't notice whether they're on bevacizumab or not. 
The flibercept, interestingly, has these VEGF-related side effects like bevacizumab, but at least in the study which was conducted with irinotecan and 5-FU, Folfiri plus minus a flibercept, the flibercept arm had remarkably higher rate of toxicities we normally associate with chemotherapy, diarrhea, complicated neutropenia, stomatitis, mucositis, etc. So and a fair number of those people actually came off the study. Exactly. So when I mean, you look at patients who discontinued the study based on adverse events, 26%, 27% in the flibercept and about 13% in placebo. It was a placebo controlled trial. So you have twice the number of patients that came off because of some adverse events in a placebo controlled study, which that's one of the reasons why some of us are hesitant to embrace a flibercept at this point in time. Another option that could be considered in this situation also might be an EGFR antibody. Correct. And the two we have are cetuximab and panitumumab. How do you go about that in terms of if you're going to use it and when? So the EGF septa antibodies are different than bevacizumab or flibercept because they target tumor cells directly. So they bind to a molecule called epidermal growth factor receptor, which is on the surface of these tumor cells. So a very different mechanism of action. We have also learned over the last years that only patients with so-called KRAS-VAL-type tumors, which are about 60% of tumors, have a chance to respond to cetuximab and panitumab. So we can actually test the tumor tissue for this genetic abnormality and then eliminate 40% of patients who have no chance to benefit from these drugs. So this is a mutation in the tumor. Correct. It's a mutation in the tumor. So one other question about EGFR antibodies. You mentioned the dermatologic problems. There are protocols out there to try to prevent these or ameliorate them once they start. How effective are they, and what do you actually do in your practice? So there's a study, the so-called STEP study, which was conducted with panitumab, where they actually did something remarkable. They randomized patients to prophylactic skin toxicity management or reactive skin toxicity management. And the prophylactic management consisted of doxycycline or minocycline, kind of an antibiotic commonly used in acne therapy, 1% steroid scream hydrocortisone lotion twice a day on the face and upper trunk, prevention of light exposure, you know. Sunblock. Sunblockers, you know, if people are out in Minnesota, it's not that important in Minnesota at this point in time, and moisturizing lotions, you know. So this prophylactically compared to reactively. And in this randomized comparison, the severity of severe skin reactions was remarkably lower with this prophylactic approach. And actually also, interestingly, diarrhea was lower. We have no idea why that is, because it shouldn't really affect that. So we have included this strategy as a routine kind of management when we order chemotherapy. We immediately get prompted to write prescriptions for these different lotions, etc. So there is one more issue in terms of metastatic disease I want to ask you about. This has been an unprecedented time the last few years in oncology in general in terms of new agents coming on board into practice, particularly novel agents as opposed to chemo agents, which we saw in the past. And in colorectal cancer, actually there are three new FDA indications. There's a flibercept that you just talked about. There's BEV continuing on progression, which actually got an FDA approval as a strategy. And there's been regorafenib, the tyrosine kinase inhibitor that you've done so much research on. Mm Can you talk about that agent, what we know about it, and then how that fits into this sort of sequence that you've been talking about? So regorafenib, as you said, is a new agent, an oral agent, multi-kinase inhibitor, pretty 
dirty drug. I mean, we've talked about some of the very specific antibodies. Antibodies bind to one molecule, like EGF receptor, cetuximab, panitumab, or bevacizumab, VEGFA, a circulating factor produced by tumor cells, etc. So regorafenib is a multi-kinase inhibitor that blocks a lot of these, what we call signaling pathways inside of tumor cells that make tumor cells aggressive probably also blocks some of the angiogenesis blood vessel growth, you know, because it blocks actually the receptor of VEGF, this angiogenic factor that we talked about. So it is a very dirty drug, very promiscuous inhibitor of a lot of these factors that are embedded in tumor cells that make tumor cells aggressive. And I guess we should point out too that these tyrosine kinase inhibitors in general, there's tons of them in oncology nowadays, work inside the cell as opposed to antibodies of flibercep working outside. Correct. So, I mean, we have, I mean, when you talk about these kinase inhibitors, we have zorafenib, zonitinib, pazopinib, excitinib, you know, all these Imatinib. Imatinib, <laughs> yeah. We have all these nibs, you know, which in some disease actually extremely effective, like imatinib in GIST, for instance, or in ECRA-ABLE CML. You know, there are, there are a lot of interesting agents. So regorafenib is a close cousin in terms of its molecular structure to zorafenib, which is approved in hepatocellular carcinoma and in kidney cancer. So regorafenib was developed to, and this is the idea, to use this drug the way this study was designed that led to the regorafenib approval, to use this drug as a salvage therapy option in patients who had run out of treatment options in their metastatic colorectal cancer disease. Of course, that was your study, and it was really an amazing study. As you said, I mean, when I first heard about it, the idea of testing an agent beyond all these other therapies, you would think it'd be kind of hard to you know, show a benefit. These people have already gotten so much treatment, and yet it did benefit the yeah. patients. So it's actually the design of the study had an interesting history because the drug really went from phase one with a little bit of expansion cohort, and we had 20, 26 patients with colorectal cancer. Just to see how to give it. How to give it and how to get a hint of activity in a lot of these patients with stable disease. You know, we skipped phase two. It went into phase three right away. So that's a remarkable thing. And then secondly, this was only possible because it was a patient population that was targeted with an unmet need. Because we all have these patients who go through their Folfox, Folfiri, Bevacizumab, Cetuximab therapy, whatever, and then they come to a point where they're still in good performance status and come to me and say, what else is there? It kind of is a little bit like the breast cancer paradigm, what's been going on there for a long time, where, you know, people get fifth, sixth, seventh line treatment. How often do you see patients get beyond, you know, still in good performance status, still want to be treated, yet they've gone beyond the usual options? You know, it's actually a surprising number of patients. And of course, at Mayo Clinic, we see selected cohort, you know, more younger patient patients who are able to come to Mayo Clinic and weather the Minnesota winter, you know, for six months a year. So we do see a significant number of patients. So in this unmet need, number of patients really led to the design of the study, which was a placebo-controlled design. And there, another twist to that, when we initially proposed the study, we said we would like to randomize patients, and a significant number of patients here in the United States, to regorafenib or placebo in a last-line setting. And we kind of blunted the effect of the placebo a little bit by using it's a two-to-one randomization, so two out of three patients received regorafenib, one out of three placebo. People said, you know, patients will not accept it to be randomized against placebo. But one of the amazing results of the study was how easy it was for us to accrue 
patients. The study was designed to accrue 690 patients. It actually accrued 760 patients. The study accrual period was supposed to be 26 months. We accrued 760 patients in 10 months. And of course, I can imagine being in that situation. You have no other option. There's an agent out there. Of course, it'd be very attractive. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that sometimes happens in trials like this is that the patients who don't get the experimental arm can receive it on progression. Is that what happened here? No, it wasn't. It wasn't allowed because FDA really wanted a pure overall survival endpoint because whenever you allow crossover and you have a now or later access to the drug and not now or never, you commonly do not see an overall survival benefit. And, you know, FDA, and from an ethical perspective, when we designed the study, given the fact that we didn't have a randomized phase two trial to show that there is some efficacy, FDA said, you know, you really need to show us that this drug works at all in the patient population. So they did not allow crossover, which, you know, at some point we needed to develop this drug. And I'm glad that we have a pretty solid overall survival benefit with this agent. So maybe Ken talk about what was seen in terms of some of the effects. And again, to me, very interestingly, you actually saw greater survival, even though it was way down the line. Yeah. Pretty modest, I mean, a month or two, yeah. but it still seemed to be there. What about response rate and progression-free survival? So when you talk about survival, patients in this situation who were on placebo had a median survival of five months. I mean, we should also point out how bad the prognosis of patients in this setting is when they've gone through all these lines of therapy. And regorafenib at an average added 1.4 months. To this. So coming from five months, adding 1.4 months, you know, you said modest. It is modest. I would love to see more benefit. I would love to pre-select patient population that has better benefit. The chance to die during the study was reduced by 23% as expressed by hazard ratio. So when I talk to patients, this is probably one of the parameters I give, that the chance to reduce the risk of death is reduced by 23%. Now, in terms of progression-free survival, and we got a scan after eight weeks, the first scan, and about 50% of patients progressed right away, even on the drug. But those patients who did not progress, they actually had a pretty long tail you know, in terms of when you look at the survival curve, these patients actually had a pretty good chance to benefit quite significantly. And I had a patient in the study for about 10 and a half months with rock solid, stable disease, which had progressed before we started her on the treatment. And she clearly benefited from this therapy. Now, in terms of what do we expect? Is it stable disease, responses, whatever? This is not a drug, at least not in this situation, of a last-line therapy where patients have exhausted a lot of treatment options that can induce too much shrinkage. I've seen one patient with documented too much shrinkage, but most patients actually stable disease. And when we talk about these kinds of benefits, they're sort of, on average, there are patients who might do better, like the patient you just talked about, and patients who maybe not do so well. Mm -hmm. And that has to be balanced out with a downside. Correct. And right off the top, the fact that it's oral certainly is advantageous. But what about side effects? Yeah. So side effects are not trivial. And one of the important points for management, and this comes into how do we monitor these patients, the side effects come very early. 
time to side effect. I mean, whatever we talk about is about one week or two weeks. That's different than other chemotherapy agents. We talk about oxaplatin, chronic neurotoxicity over time, hypertension on bevacizumab. You know, this is really a very early phenomenon of side effects. And the critical side effects are hand-foot-skin reaction. That's not the hand-foot syndrome we see with the scaling and reddening of hand and feet. But it's more an inflammatory reaction that can cause some blisters, for instance, in hand and feet, especially feet, you know, and patients need to be advised to remove calluses, for instance, use comfy shoes. And, you know, some shoes that I see, you know, are not really meant for walking, they're meant for display. So those shoes are not ideal for regorafenib. Fatigue is a big issue, you know, can hit early. Diarrhea can occur. Probably a lot of patients who are, go to that point you know, have already experience with diarrhea and diarrhea management. It's not the main issue. But then even generalized skin rash. I've seen patients with a whole body erythema. And another point is liver value abnormalities, hyperbilirubinemia, transaminitis, meaning the AST, ALT go up. And these phenomena come within the first week or two. And we know, and we've been using tyrosine kinase inhibitors for a long time in different situations. Renal cell cancer is an example. That what I see is, in general, it seems like the usual response to these is to change the dose, hold the drug, as opposed to try to treat the symptomatology. Is that what's done with regorafenib, and does that work? No, that's exactly what's done with regorafenib. Unfortunately, the side effects are transient. So if you hold the drug and you then continue the drug, even with a dose reduction, you know, you can manage these side effects. What we do at Mayo Clinic is we see patients back after one week or at least have phone contact after one week if they are from further away, which a lot of our patients are. We definitely see patients back after two weeks for liver enzyme checkup, see how they're doing, etc., and then adjust doses. I mean, there's still some discussion about the dose that was used in the regorafenib study, in the correct study, which led to the approval, was 160 milligrams, which is four tablets, once a day for three weeks on, one week off. Whether 160 milligrams is the appropriate starting dose, you know, should you de-escalate when you have toxicities or should you escalate, you know, start with a lower dose. And same discussion we have with zorafenib in liver cancer, you know, there's a lot of physicians actually don't use the full dose, 400 milligrams twice a day, start with lower doses. And the longer we have experience with regraph, we might change doses over time. We've done it with Cape Sidewin. No one uses the published initial dose, which is considered way too high. So we've played with these oral agents quite a bit anyway. So let's imagine that you're about to start regorafenib on a patient like the one mm-hmm. you described. They've already gotten their Folfox bev. They've gotten either bev one progression or maybe if they might have gotten an EGFR antibody if the tumor was KRAS wild. But in any event, they're now at the point that they're starting regorafenib. And they would say to you, okay, what's the chance we're just going to cruise right through this like I'm taking a placebo? What's the chance that I'm going to have some kind of problems, but you're going to be able to deal with it by holding the dose or whatever? Mm-hmm. And what's the chance I'm going to have so much of a problem, you're going to have to stop it? So about, I would say, 20% of patients have very limited side effects, where you can really stay on the dose, keep going, but that's the minority. In 80%, we have to manage 
doses, schedules, etc. And this is pretty consistent between colorectal cancer and GIST, for instance, where regorafenib is also approved. It's a very active agent. Very active. Very active. Amazingly, yeah. wow. Yeah. Uh, now there you really see some changes. Some, you really see some changes. I mean, but GIST is a different animal. Absolutely. You know, it's very different. It's not as complicated a treat. So we have similar phenomena in GIST and in colon cancer that 80% of patients need some management strategy. In this study, less than 10% of patients stopped regorafenib due to adverse events. It was actually 8%. So it's a minority of patients that will completely stop for adverse events. Now, keeping in mind that these patients, of course, are in a desperate situation, and they're willing to take certain side effects into account, which a healthy person might say, you know, you really want to do that because the perception of what's tolerable between a healthy person and a cancer patient, as you have shown in when we talk about adjuvant therapy, you know, what are you willing to go through in terms of toxicities differs between when you're a patient or whether you're a healthy person.